Welcome and good morning to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ. And this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 15. We are two weeks from Easter, uh, which will be, which is always an exciting time. We have invitations out in the back uh, if you didn't grab some, but uh, it'll be a special day as it always is. Um, and next Sunday we'll have uh, Seth preach to us on a Palm Sunday. It'll be Palm Sunday next week, which is the day Jesus enters the city. Uh, he enters Jerusalem there uh, with people waving the palm branches. So that's always a, a special week because it's one of the few times with the Bible where we know when things actually happened. We're not just guessing. Uh, we actually know Wednesday this happened, Thursday this happened, Friday this happened, Saturday, uh, Sunday, is, uh, Jesus rises from the dead. So it's a special time and we look forward to that. But we'll be in Genesis chapter 15. We'll be continuing through the book of Genesis Last week, we talked about, well, two weeks ago, before the JMU service, we talked about rescue. Uh, Abram rescues his nephew Lot from the evil, the the four kings, Cerdoleomer, who comes over from uh, the east, and he defeats them. He takes his nephew Lot back and returns back to the promised land. Um, Right at the end of that chapter, Abram encounters a very mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Melchizedek says something interesting. He, pre, he blesses Abram. Uh, he says to Abram, God will deliver you. And that word deliver uh, is a word that we'll see right away in chapter 15, verse 1. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your deliverer. Some versions say shield. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. Which is really funny. (laughs) How will I know? God, tell me. Bring me a heifer. You'll find out in a second, I guess. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Go get these animals for me, Abram. Verse 10, Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. 
But I will punish the nation they, uh, they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and Jebusites. Another one of those passages we've got to probably unpack a little bit, huh? The book of Genesis is interesting. A, a commentator, a friend of mine, puts it like this. Not really my friend, but I like to consider him a friend. Um, but he puts it like this. The book of Genesis is just happy face, sad face. Every chapter is happy face, sad face. It's, it's sad face. Lot was taken. Happy face. He's rescued. Happy face. You're going to bear much children. You're going to have kids. You're going to have offspring. But, I'm, but we're really old and we haven't had kids. Sad face. But, and so the whole thing is just, but here, we're going to work for your family. But here's the thing is Abram gives his wife to be able to be, to, gives him a way out of fear to be used you know, sexually by other men, to be taken advantage of so that he doesn't have to suffer any kind of pressure or actually have his own life in danger. Sad face. But here's the thing. God works through their issues. And so the whole book is kind of up and down and up and down and up and down. And what's encouraging about that is so is your life. Um. That for us, as Christians especially, every day can seem up and down and up and down and up and down. Great quiet time, but the second the quiet time ends, something happens. We're late to work. Kids have, something happens with the kids. We have a really bad morning, but then church goes well. Or everything's, everything can feel like a struggle. Sometimes even just getting somewhere, getting too devotional on a Friday night, it's a huge victory. Is you're able, but, but even at, when you're there, maybe, maybe it, it's, everything is up and down. There's a constant tension. That's what's so encouraging about the book of Genesis is that it's real life. But what, what is really happening here? It's an interesting, it's a really interesting passage. It's a really important passage uh, for several reasons. We have to remember a little bit of background. God chooses to redeem the world through a family. And so you have here the idea of God working through people to redeem the world. And so you have two domains you hear about in the Bible a lot. Even outside the Bible, you hear people talk about light and darkness. And God chose to redeem the world from darkness to light using people, using you, in fact, using us. All of us are sitting here because somebody interrupted our life with the good news about God's love and Jesus Christ. We're all sitting here because somebody did that. And other people will sit here because we were able to do the same for them. God has chosen to use us. We're not the source of the power. He's the source of the power. But God chose, chose to use people. And whenever you decide to love somebody, you risk getting hurt. Because they're people. None of us are, none of us are perfect. As much as we like to think that that person maybe that we're dating or that we're married to, even early on in the marriage perhaps, is perfect, uh, they're, they're just people. And people have sin. And so as you work through people, so many things come into play. And God chooses to do something incredible in Genesis chapter 15. He says, go grab me a heifer. Uh, 
So, which is a really interesting thing, and we're going we're gonna to get there, don't worry. But uh, God comes to Abram, and he says something powerful early on in chapter 15. Did you notice it? He says, don't be afraid. Why would Abram be afraid? God says, don't be afraid. What's Abram afraid of? People think, well, maybe he just finished this big battle in chapter 14. Maybe he's afraid for his life. Maybe. Maybe he's talking to God and God's kind of preparing him for an interaction with the almighty Yahweh. So he's like, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. Maybe he's trying to comfort a man who for his entire life never was able, along with his wife, to have children. Which, by the way, back then was an unmitigated disaster. It was for several reasons a disaster. There was no, uh, when, you got, when you got older, you didn't have anybody to take care of you except for your kids. Your life insurance, your, uh, your social security was your children. They took care of you. They, they, everything you handed down, everything of value, everything of importance, you had to pass on. Without passing it on, it was considered, A, to be a disaster, and B, even more scarily, it was considered to be from God. The reason you're not having kids is because God doesn't want you to have kids. That's how they considered it. And to this day, we can actually think that way a lot of times with anything, but especially with that particular struggle, that it's God's decision to, to prevent it. And I like to think it's the third option that the Abram here, here's God. And he knows that God's made this promise to give him children. And then when God comes up and says, hey, listen, don't be afraid. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Abram has a funny response, right? But it's not a, an unusual response. Basically, Abram, son, I love you. And you know what? I will protect you. I will deliver you. I always got your back. And Abram goes, if you really love me, why don't I have kids? Where's this promise? Where's the, where, where are you? And Dion said it very well. Where, where are you, God? You've promised. You've You've made this, this, this promise, and sometimes it's explicit. Sometimes we just assume, like, why does this bad stuff have to happen? It's not explicit promises, but we feel like God should be there, but he's not there, and we struggle with that. And the circumstances cause us to actually hurt in our faith. People find out how strong their faith is when there's a crisis. You don't find out how strong your faith is when things are good. When there's a crisis, when something happens, when there's... When your circumstances are dire is when your faith is shown for what it is. And that's sadly what usually takes people out, but it's conversely the thing that strengthens you more than anything else. The title of my lesson today is You Promised. Genesis 15. We hate it when someone breaks a promise. We can't stand it. And it's not just adults, it's kids. You promised. I learned, I don't even have kids, but I've made promises to some of your kids, and uh, they never, ever forget, do they? I remember one Devo, uh, CJ's been in kind of this really like fight phase, you know, he wants to fight people. And so like six months ago, CJ was like hitting people at Devo, and I said, hey, CJ, you don't, don't hit them, but you can hit me if you want. And um, so he goes, all right, you know, so, he, he, so we're kind of play wrestling or whatever. And then like four months later at church, he comes up to me and he just punches me right in the side. And I was like, CJ, we should not hit. And he goes, you said I could hit you. And I was like, oh my gosh, he got me. I was like, you got me, CJ. Well done, sir. The, the day is yours. Um, 
But the kids, they remember, right? You just can't say something. And sometimes we make promises without really thinking about what we're saying. Like for me, it was like, let me just deal with this kind of short-term thing. Um, and then it won't, and then, but I didn't really think long-term about obviously what could happen, that the bruises, the bruises that could ensue. Um, uh, hopefully there's like a statute of limitations on that thing. And when he gets really big, he's not still doing it, but it could be no good for me. But promises, you know, sometimes when promises are broken, we, we look like this. Sometimes we look like that. That one was, that one was heartbreaking to me. Sometimes we just we throw a fit. In fact, if you ever go to Walmart, I think it's really likely that you hear a child screaming. Especially that cereal aisle. That cereal aisle is, is just hell, man. It is, it is like, it is Dante's Inferno. You are walking through the layers of hell, every temptation. I mean, I feel, I'm like, Jenny, can I have Cocoa Puffs? And can I have Captain Crunch? And can I, can I have all of them? Um, you know, it's a... The kids show this really well, this you promise thing. But I think for a lot of us, oh, there's, I have a stat. But for a lot of us, um, promises are really important. And it's not just kids, but it's, it's in relationships. Um, a lot of us make a really important promise on our wedding day. And that promise is supposed to mean something. But it's a promise, too, that I think when there are broken promises, it has a lasting impact on us. And whenever someone breaks a promise, there's a lapse in trust. I can't trust you, you know, if you break a promise. You said you'd be home at this time, you weren't. And, and, and it gets harder and harder to then trust because promises are thus broken. And so I think with, the, with weddings, I think it's especially poignant because it's an eternal promise, yeah. right? I mean, a promise to like do this thing for you next week versus sickness and health and and forevermore, and right, till so, so, so death do us part. But I think our insecurities with promises, if, if promises made to us, our, my insecurity can be, and I think our insecurity can be, um, what if they change their mind? What if, what if along the way they change their mind and this is no longer beneficial to them? And that's the risk, right? You say, I will love you forever, but 10 years from now, when it really gets rough, Will you really love me when the chips are down, when things are hard, when I'm not, maybe I'm not being as likable or lovable as I should? Will you still love me? And that's where the promise comes into play. That's why marriage is so supposed to be so powerful is I will actually I'm making a vow. I'm making a commitment to a to a promise to some someone else, but not just as long as it serves me, as long as dating or marriage is serving me or friendships serve me then it's just, we, who can we trust? And that's what this is really going on. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. This is a, a big deal in the Bible. This is the covenant God makes with Abraham, Abram at this point. And a covenant is just a fancy word for agreement or a contract. Um, it's not really a bet, but it's close to a bet. Uh, but it's a contract. You know, Caleb Fix and I make contracts all the time. Um, like a contract that if Duke beats North Carolina... He has to wear cowboy stuff at the next devotional. Like, that's a contract, right? And so he has to come through on that. Uh, although we have a double or nothing, so uh, stay, stay tuned. But it's a contract. If I don't uh, do what I'm supposed to do, this will happen to me. So why the whole cutting animals in half thing? It's kind of gruesome. It's kind of strange. Uh, none of us, I think, would, would like to do that. This is an ancient uh, contract uh, situation. And we actually have a document from 600 years before this. It's non-biblical. 
But it's about a man basically who took a, a, a goat and he said, listen, and he, you often had a suzerain and a vassal. A suzerain was this big king and a vassal was this little tiny guy, this tiny country. And the tiny country said, hey, listen, if you give us food and if you give us warriors and if you take care of us, if you protect us, then we'll do whatever you want. We'll come and fight for you if you need us to fight for you. And so it's a contract between two nations. And so the suzerain would basically say, all right, but how do I know it's any good? You know, how do I know you're good for it? And the guy would take a, a goat, something of value, and cut it in half and say, basically, let this be me if I don't come through. You can do this to me if I don't come through for you. And you'd have witnesses. And they'd say, all right, everyone see what just went down? If you don't come through on this, that happens to you. And that's how it worked in ancient times. Pretty common ancient contract between nations. What's cool about this, the suzerain vassal thing, is that the, uh, the word for I am your shield, your very great reward, I'm your deliverer, is also a word for suzerain. Mm-hmm. So God is saying to Abram, I am your suzerain. You're a small nation. You need a big nation to protect you. But, not a, but I'm your suzerain, not those guys. I will protect you. If you need anything, I am your shield. I'm your deliverer. I, I'm here for you. Of course, then Abram goes on to complain, if you're here for me, then why has all this bad stuff happened? Namely, why do I not have kids yet? Um, why, why do my wife and I not have children? And so it's essentially a promise. Um, and we live, we live in a world where promises are, are <laughs> they don't really mean anything. Uh, promises politically used to mean you follow through with it. Maybe it never did. But uh, now I feel that people, it, it's, like, it's like your high school running for student president, right? It's, they're never, I never got chocolate milk in the water fountain. But my student, my student president kept promising me every year to give me that chocolate milk in the water fountain. And it never happened, right? But I believed in that promise, and so I voted for them. But those, those are kind of, those promises don't really hit us, I guess, as hard as some other ones. We struggle a lot with promises of fidelity. I mean, uh, it's incredible. Like, uh, dude, these statistics, I'll just show you these statistics about people today, especially young people and their perspective on the world. Uh, this was done by two statistic groups, Pewform and the Barna Group. But Pewform said 60% of practicing Christians read their Bible once or twice a year. Another 20% read it once a month. So 80% of all practicing Christians read their Bible at most 12 times a year. 41% of millennial Christians, that's Christians that are pretty much my age or a little bit older, a little bit younger, Believe that it is up to each person to decide what is truth for them. This is Christians. This is not people. This is, that's half of all Christians, people who consider themselves Christians. Truth is whatever I decide it to be for me, which doesn't have to be, by the way, the Bible. It could be anything. 47% of all practicing Christians believe that each culture must determine what is morally acceptable for its people. We're getting higher now, 47%. 76% of practicing Christians believe that the best way to find yourself is by looking inside yourself. I think I got two more here. 72% of practicing Christians, these numbers are massive, believe that in order to be fulfilled in life, you must pursue the things which you desire most. If I want to be happy, I should just go do what I want to do. That's 72% of practicing Christians. Now these statistics, who knows how accurate, but 72%. It's a number. We're, not, that's two, that's, we're talking over two-thirds. 
And sadly, the biggest one is that this is not Christians, but this is just suicide in the last 20 years. And our nation is up 30%. Um, a lot of us know the sad story of the men every week. Uh, some of us go to uh, coffee at Millie Joe Coffee Roasters on Saturday at 7 a.m. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I saw the, the owner there. Jenny pointed him out to me and said, that's, that's the, the owner he owns. Two places in Charlottesville, he's a successful business owner. He was doing his homework, uh, doing his son's homework with him. His son's about four years old. He's a young married guy. He's my age. He's, or I think, 33. He was 33. He uh, committed suicide two weeks ago. And um, he's esteemed. He's well-known in Charlottesville. I mean, Andre works with, with a mutual friend of his. Um, what, you know, but uh, he passed away. He, he, and I don't know. It's one of those things, even as for us, the, the men that go to the coffee shop there, it's staggering. It's, it's scary, you know. I mean, left behind a kid. and I, I don't know all the details, so I mean, I don't want to perpetuate anything, but I, I know that he's gone, and I know that I saw him a few days before his death, and there's something going on in our country that's, that's scary, and I think what it is is a lot of young people, especially young people, are being told that there is no afterlife. There is no heaven. There is no point to anything. Everything is relative. Everything's material. Everything's do whatever's best for you. And because nothing matters, you can't trust anything. If nothing matters, you can't trust anything. So who are you supposed to trust? Yourself. They tell you only trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Find truth in yourself. Do what's best for yourself. But ourselves are not the most consistent things. Ourselves change. Right? Ourselves are very, I mean, myself, myself changes. This is the center of of disease control. Um, And those are just staggering numbers, but I think that there's a a growing sense in our nation of to whom do I place my trust? Where do I go? If everything is chemicals and everything is just a chemical response, if everything's happiness, then why not take shortcuts? Why not take drugs? Why not just just shortcut marriage? Why not have multiple partners in marriage? Why Why not do all of it, right? Why not just go? But then they get to a point, especially young people, where they have no hope. And young people, at an alarming rate, and I was writing this, this sermon two weeks ago, and I had a news channel on, and just and the news put up two people from the Parkland shooting had survivor's guilt, and they killed themselves, two high school girls. A man whose son had died in the Connecticut shooting killed himself a few weeks ago. This is just every week now. And it's, 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 it's a huge bummer. You might be asking, how is, how is this connected to promises? I think when, when, we place our, when we place value, we place a truth, and we put it on ourselves. We put it within ourselves. Uh, that is liable to, de- to destroy. And, you know, it's, it's a really scary thing. I was talking to a brother out in the Hampton Roads Church who's a federal defender. And I'm not going to get into all the details because it's, it's, it's horrible. But he was talking about these men who are mostly men, but some women as well, who are uh, sexual deviants. And he basically was saying... That it's, they're getting, the men are getting younger and younger. It's like 20 years ago, these men in the 50s, now these men in early 20s are doing these awful things. And a lot of it's because, uh, I believe his direct quote was, they started looking at adult pornography, but it just wasn't enough. He says their appetite increased, 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 increased. It's the same with drugs. It's the same with any pleasure. It increased, 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 increased. And that's, we live in the best, the, in terms of like uh, 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 money, in terms of uh, comfortability, and unemployment rate. We live in the best country in the best time in all of history. We do. It's just facts. We live in the best place in the best time in history. 
And uh, a friend, I say a friend of mine again, he's not a friend, uh, but an author, Delmore Schwartz, said uh, about America in the 20th century, he said, I think there's nothing more depressing than realizing that all the things you ever wanted will not fill you up. And that's what we're seeing in America. We're getting all the things we always wanted. If we could just have more money, if we could just have, we could put our trust in financial security, we could put our trust in a marriage. We could put our trust in that girl and that guy. We could put our trust in our family. We could put our trust in our physical ability. We could put our trust in our intellect. We could put our trust in our resourcefulness. This is a big one for nowadays, especially for young people, especially for Charlottesville. Put my trust in my independence, my autonomy, my resourcefulness, my ability, my networking skills, my business, my entrepreneurial ability. It's not a word. Can't even spell it. That's a crazy word to spell. My entrepreneurship. There you go. Put all this effort into this. Put it in me. But it's because we think God's not there. And we may not say it, but we live it. How many of those 80% Christians who don't read their Bible but 12, 12 times a year are, is us? We like to think it's those people out there in some survey, but how much of that is us? We may not say it, but we live it. Trust in myself. I've got more important things to do than read my Bible. That's, what we, that's how we live. I know that God is first. You may know it, but you don't really know it. And this is hard for me as well. In this case, I'm preaching at you, but I'm also struggling with you. Because I think the more we just get acclimated with these things, it's so easy. We just get, I feel it getting sucked into just like this Christian stereotype of hypocrisy. Of we meet up once or twice a week and we know it, but do we live it? And then when you try to live it, it's hard. And everyone goes, it shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard. If it's hard, it's not you. You're not expressing yourself. If it's difficult, but we forget that the, to struggle is to be human. Right. Struggle is important. If we're going to shortcut every struggle in life, we're never going to actually live the way that God intended us to live. Right. We're not going to ever learn. We're not going to, it's a friend of mine, this is actually an actual friend of mine said yesterday, we're not going to flex those muscles. Yeah. We're not going to build those neural pathways. And I love that God, uh, God does this. Okay, so God, who walks, through the, uh, who walks through the animals? Now, it's a fire pot. It's a smoking fire pot. Now, back then, smoke, fire was basically associated with, with Yahweh. So who's in this a covenant? Who's in this agreement? It's not both of them. This is not a contract between two people. This is a promise from one person. God is effectively saying, Abram, I am your guy. I am your father. I am your suzerain. I'm your protector. And by the way, and Abram goes, but how? How can I know? You haven't given me the kids that you promised me. I, I, I don't get it. And God says, I will do it for you. I will do it. And it does say that Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then still, it seems like he's struggling. And God says, you know what? I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Go get me a heifer. Abram goes, wow, a heifer. Go get me a goat. You want to know if I'm serious? Let it be. I, I will be just like these if I do not come through on my promise. You don't believe me, Abram? Check this out. And we know that death is one of those things in the world that actually wakes us up. In fact, even these animals dying, for some of us, that's the most offensive thing about this passage, but it woke you up, didn't it? It woke you up to go, what's going on? But death, there, there can be no promise, there can be no sacrifice without blood. And God makes this promise. And Abram's, it's credited to Abram as righteousness. Hop over to Romans chapter four. I think our biggest struggle with believing God 
Because God makes promises to us. And I think the one that's at the core of everything is from Genesis 15. I am your shield, your very great reward. I love you. And all of our sin, all of our struggle, all of, even those of us that aren't disciples yet, we're really kind of like, we're testing the water of does God really love us? Um, and the microcosm of every decision you make, when, when the kids are throwing a fit and they are losing it, and you're already 30 minutes late for Bible talk, and you have that thought of let's just not go. It is, it is a struggle between if we go, the pros and cons, the cost-benefit analysis, right? If we go, will it just be awful and worse? If we don't go, what will happen? And it's in the decision to come to church this morning. It's in the decision to call your friend and ask her how she's doing. It's in the decision on the way home from work to call that brother and say, can we pray? It's in the decision to share your faith. It's in every decision of will I be okay? Will I be hurt? Will it not go well for me? Will my kids be able to have money, security? Will my family... Will it all be okay? I love the story of the, the, young, uh, the, the young father who was hiking with his, his young kid. His, his kid was about four or five years old. And they're hiking and his, the dad uh, hears, Dad, catch! And dad turns around and his son's in midair. And he just catches him. He had jumped from a boulder. And uh, the dad goes, what is wrong with you? Why did you do that? You could have got hurt. Why did you do that? And the kid just goes, because you're my dad. And the dad's like, oh, man, it got me. But the son, the son, it's amazing. Because the son believed he trusted the person, he could trust the command. He could trust the action. I trust, he's my dad. Of course I'll be okay. Right? And if you have trouble with the word faith, just think of trust. That usually helps me. But in Romans chapter 4, we'll read in verse um, in 16. It says in Romans 4, 16, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law and also to those who have faith in Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we believed, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not, that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, I love in verse 18, it says against all hope. The difficult part of trusting in God, the difficult part of believing in God of trusting that he will in fact catch us if we say, dad, catch, or dad, look. If the difficult part of that is our circumstances. As was shared earlier, right? Dion said, it, after the first person left, it was like, okay, God's probably gonna work. But after the second or third, you start to think, well, hold on, does God really love me? Is God really there? Circumstances too often dictate our faith. In one sense, it's, it makes sense but in another sense, it indicates something about our faith. What does it indicate about your faith? If, if circumstances change, your faith changes. It means your faith is not in God as your father. Your faith is in what God gives you. As long as God gives me the children, 
As long as God gives me these things, as long as my friends stay faithful, I will love God. Now, I'll be honest, that's difficult. All of us struggle in those times. All of us have conflict in those times when things don't go well. But that's the times that make us different. That's the times that people see, oh, it's just some Christian from work, or that guy is different. They had a financial, I still remember, remember that when the Martins came a few months ago and preached, and they did a, women, they did a, a parenting workshop for us at um, First Presbyterian, and Tom shared the story about how he got laid off and didn't know it was going to happen, and smiled the whole time, and said God worked it out, and then just kind of brushed it aside. <laughs> I was, that, I just, I'll never forget that. I feel like if it was me, that would have been all I talked about for weeks or months, like, this is not fair. But I, was, but I was amazed. You know why I was amazed? Because it was different than what anybody else would do. That his faith was not dictated by circumstance. How do we get there, though? It sounds so lofty. It sounds impossible. How do you get to a place where you're not affected by, by how your week goes? And believe me, I believe, most of, I believe most of us want to get there. Having a week that's not dictated by your spouse's emotions. Sign me up. Having a week that's not, that wasn't a specific thing for my specific relationship. Talking about Jim is what I was talking about. Thanks, Jim. My relationship with Jim. Um, but uh, a week where it's not about how your kids are doing, a week where it's not about those things. It's a, it's, it's a consistency. They did a, um, there was a book written recently on kingdom kids. That's kind of a word that uh, we use sometimes about kids that grew up in the kingdom that grew up going to a church, especially our family of churches. Yeah. And one of the things they saw that, that affected kids the most was them seeing their parents have consistent times with God. It was the consistent things. It was deciding we're going to go even though things are not going well. Uh, we were just talking with a family out in Lexington, Kentucky. Their son is an all-star baseball player. He's 12, uh, Sean and Mindy Kirkland. And uh, their son's an all-star baseball player who said he couldn't play Sundays because... He goes to church Sunday. And uh, he, was, he had the best batting average on the team. He led the team in homers. And uh, he was kicked off the team. And he wasn't elected to the all-star team. Best player in the league. Wow. Um, because in a tournament, the, the championship games were on Sunday. So he was seen as like not being loyal or not being loyal to the team. Um, and what Sean had shared, the most interesting thing, is that their son had three different coaches. Uh, I think he said an atheist, uh, a guy who was pretty worldly. Uh, probably the nicest way I could say it, and then uh, a Christian guy. And by far the most persecution came from the Christian guy. They said, you're not dedicated to this team. And the reality is, church, is that darkness isn't just out there, but darkness can creep in here. It's not just out there. We look at those stats and go, wow, it's so evil out there. But also it's evil in here. It it can creep in. And and it's it's one of those things that can shock us at first, but after enough time goes by, it's normal. It's just, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But... I want to encourage all of us to do one simple thing. The beauty of this chapter is its simplicity. How can you have trust in God that is unshakable, uncircumstantial, just an oak tree of consistent, beautiful, steadfast faith? Here it is, verse 19. Without weakening in his trust, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith 
and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Hold on. I thought you said, if we're going to have faith, we've got to just bury our head in the sand. Faith is just blind faith. It's just, oh, you know what? My kids are having a bad day. Just don't look, la, 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 bad. Just go to church anyway. Go to church. Don't even just, uh, just ignore the kids. That's faith, right? No, that's not faith. Ah, oh, my marriage is so bad. Just forget it. My marriage is so bad. Just love faith. Do, do the right thing. 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 That's not faith either. Faith is not blind trust. Abraham faced the facts that his body was as good as dead. And also, mildly offensively, that his wife's womb was as good as dead. Thank you for adding that, Paul. I appreciate it. Just to make it really clear, they were, I think, 70 and 90 at the time. Like, it's, they faced the facts. That's, That's faith. Faith is saying, here's the facts. Things are not going well. We got to face those facts. But I will not waver in unbelief. God will deliver. I don't know how, but he will. We got to face the facts. I have sin in my life. I got to confess it. I got to face those facts. I have addictions and I got to get real about those addictions. I got to confess this week. I got to set up marriage counseling with a couple in the church this week because my marriage is not doing well. I got to face those facts, but I will not waver in unbelief because Jesus Christ is Lord. And that trust is unshakable because it's not within you. It's outside you. Having a trust that's outside yourself can never be touched. No matter what happens in the world, no matter who gets elected, no matter what happens, if the government crashes tomorrow or if it doubles in revenue or size, I don't even know if, 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 if unemployment is zero percent, if, if race relations get incredible or they get way worse, if class, if the class struggled, it doesn't matter. We'll face those facts together. We'll face the facts of our world together, but we will not waver in unbelief. And that will be something that stands out as a light and darkness. When people see you at work go, man, their kids are always crazy, but they are so faithful. (laughs) That is insane. Can we please get some help? It's not perfection. It's facing facts. It's not perfection. You've got to face the facts that you haven't had a real quiet time in a month. Face the facts. It's okay. Face it. You're not going to waver in unbelief. God made a promise. And the beautiful thing about the promise that was made is God said, so close out with this. God said, listen, Abram, let it be. Let me be like one of these animals if I don't come through on this promise. Jesus said, if I do come through on this promise, let me be like one of these animals. Jesus didn't make a promise to us. Yeah, and our worry is that uh, with promises is that the person who makes the promise will change their mind, especially over a long period of time, especially after the person doesn't deserve it, especially after they've shown inconsistency. Jesus never changed his mind, and he had ample opportunity. And Jesus didn't hold up an agreement to love you because of some benefit he may receive from you. You are wholly unlikable in terms of sin. All of us are. Nothing about us is redeemable in terms of sin, but Jesus made a promise. He made a promise. And the beautiful thing about that is when you know that, you are able to say, brother, I haven't had a quiet time in a month, but praise God for grace. I'm going to get after this week. And I got to get some advice on what a real quiet time looks like. Sister, my marriage is, as far as I can tell, in shambles. I mean, it's just, it's cold shoulder, cold shoulder. It's emotion, emotion, emotion every day. We need help. I got to face those facts, but you know what? God is good and he's going to work no matter what, no matter what happens. 
but I want your help. You know what? We need help with our kids. You know what? Right now, our schedule's crazy. You know what? Right now, I have this addiction and I've been hiding. I've been lying about it for months, for weeks. People have asked me and I've, I've lied, but you know what? I got to face those facts. But Jesus is Lord. And that's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. If you trust the person, you trust the command. And for us this morning, I want to encourage us all to really go after trusting that person. If you trust Jesus, then no matter what, you can jump from any boulder, any rock. Say, you're, you're my dad. I trusted that you're my father. I, I can do anything. I, I'll be okay. Nothing can touch me because you're my dad. And I, because I trust who you are, any command, I'll work on it. I'll face some facts, but I'll work on it to get there. Let's go ahead and close out with a prayer and we'll stand up for a final song.